And it's a team that reflects the fact that America is back, ready to lead the world, not retreat from it. They'll tell me what I need to know, not what I want to know. And for the first time in four years, we can have a happy Thanksgiving. Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI, Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene. Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we're on WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii, KAKU. Columbus, Ohio, WGRN. Palinville, New York, WLPP. Rochester, New York, WRFZ. New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ. Seattle, Washington, KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR. Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But today, once again, you got me. I'm Nicole Sandler. I'm host of The Nicole Sandler Show, based at nicolesandler.com, and always happy to fill in for Brad and Desi. So, we've got a busy show for you today. Coming up, Ari Berman. Next to Brad Friedman, probably the best journalist out there working on election issues. Then we're going to examine a word that's overused by this president, this soon-to-be ex-president, but one that I kind of think applies to him. We'll find out who's right and the proper definition of the word treason. But let's begin with the news. Finally, finally this week, the General Service Administration signed off on the ascertainment, which allows the transition to officially begin. President-elect Joe Biden announced his choices for his national security team on Tuesday. Biden said the experts he chose had the experience to restore America's global leadership in fighting terrorism, climate change, and nuclear proliferation. It's a team that reflects the fact that America is back, ready to lead the world, not retreat from it. They'll tell me what I need to know, not what I want to know, what I need to know. Biden noted that his choice for director of national intelligence, former deputy director of the CIA, Avril Haines, would be the first woman in the post. I will never forget that my role on this team is unique. Better than that of a policy advisor, I will represent to you Congress and the American public, the patriots who comprise our intelligence community. Mr. President-elect, you know that I have never shied away from speaking truth to power. And that will be my charge as Director of National Intelligence. He also pointed out that his selection for the head of the Department of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, would be the first Latino and the first immigrant in that job. The Department of Homeland Security has a noble mission to help keep us safe and to advance our proud history as a country of welcome. For 12 years, I had the privilege to stand in a federal courtroom and announce Alejandro Mayorkas on behalf of the United States of America. The words on behalf of the United States of America meant everything to me and to my parents. My father and mother brought me to this country to escape communism. They cherished our democracy and were intensely proud to become United States citizens as was I. Jake Sullivan was then VP Biden's national security advisor and also worked in Hillary Clinton's State Department as head of policy planning. Biden nominated him to be national security advisor. We will be vigilant in the face of enduring threats 
from nuclear weapons to terrorism. But you have also tasked us with reimagining our national security for the unprecedented combination of crises we face at home and abroad. The pandemic, the economic crisis, the climate crisis, technological disruption, threats to democracy, racial injustice, and inequality in all forms. The work of the team behind me today will contribute to progress across all of these fronts. Linda Thomas-Greenfield is a career diplomat who served as the Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs. She's Biden's choice to be UN ambassador. In the years that I've worked in government, I'm always struck by how only in America would we be where we are today, where life can be hard and cruel, but there's hope in the struggle. There is promise in our dreams, where you learn to believe in yourself and that anything is possible. And on this day, I'm thinking about the American people, my fellow career diplomats and public servants around the world. I want to say to you, America is back. Multilateralism is back. Diplomacy is back. Former Secretary of State and Senator John Kerry will re-enter government as Biden's special climate envoy. No one should doubt the determination of this president and vice president. They shouldn't doubt the determination of a country that went to the moon, cured supposedly incurable diseases, and beat back global tyranny to win World War II. In addressing the climate crisis, President-elect Joe Biden is determined to seize the future now and leave a healing planet to future generations. And for Secretary of State, Joe Biden named Tony Blinken. He served as one of Biden's top Senate aides, then as Deputy National Security Advisor and Deputy Secretary of State under President Obama. My late stepfather, Samuel Pizarro, he was one of 900 children in his school in Bialystok, Poland, but the only one to survive the Holocaust after four years in concentration camps. At the end of the war, he made a break from a death march into the woods in Bavaria. From his hiding place, he heard a deep rumbling sound. It was a tank, but instead of the Iron Cross, he saw painted on its side a five-pointed white star. He ran to the tank. The hatch opened. An African-American GI looked down at him. He got down on his knees and said the only three words that he knew in in English that his mother had taught him before the war. God bless America. That's who we are. That's what America represents to the world, however imperfectly. Now, we have to proceed with equal measures of humility and confidence. Wall Street obviously liked the announcements as the Dow Jones Industrial Average closed above 30,000 points on Tuesday for the first time in history. Of course, Donald Trump tried to take credit for the record, bizarrely delivering an unusual 63-second-long statement in the White House briefing room, during which he called the number sacred. The stock market's just broken 30,000, never been broken, that number. That's a sacred number, 30,000. Nobody thought they'd ever see it. And it's the 48th time that we've broken records in during the Trump administration. And I just want to congratulate all the people within the administration that worked so hard. And most importantly, I want to congratulate the people of our country because there are no people like you. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. Wow. Thankfully, news organizations ran headlines noting that the record came as the Biden transition is finally getting underway and Janet Yellen was announced as Treasury Secretary. The Drudge Report ran a particularly brutal headline declaring stocks soar on Trump's exit. So Trump left the briefing room without taking any questions. He also ignored reporters later in the day when he appeared in the Rose Garden for the annual turkey pardon. But his comments were snide and sarcastic, alluding to a fraudulent election for some reason. And again, he took no questions, even though the assembled press shouted them about who else he might pardon on his way out the door. Axios reported Tuesday night that Trump has told confidants he plans to pardon Michael Flynn. 
Stay tuned. Meanwhile, Joe Biden won in Pennsylvania and Nevada again, as election officials on Tuesday officially certified those wins in those states. Moving on to the virus. The United States reported 2,146 deaths from the coronavirus on Tuesday, the highest daily death total in six months. The nation also reported 172,935 new infections. And the number of hospitalizations also hit a new high of 88,080 people. Millions are expected to ignore guidelines against holiday travel this week. And experts have warned that we could see infection numbers explode. But at least there was some more promising news on the vaccine front. The federal government saying it plans to distribute 6.4 million doses of Pfizer's coronavirus vaccine within 24 hours of regulatory approval for emergency use, which is expected before Christmas. The first shots will go to frontline health care workers, according to General Gustav Perna, the man who's overseeing logistics for Operation Warp Speed. And thankfully, Biden's incoming coronavirus team is now in on the discussions. The White House agreed on Tuesday to let President-elect Joe Biden start receiving the intelligence summaries in the presidential daily brief. That decision comes a day after Trump's announcement that he had instructed his administration to start cooperating with the Biden transition team. And Biden did receive that briefing Wednesday morning. The Centers for Disease Control is now considering reducing the recommended quarantine time for people exposed to the virus from 14 days down to 10 or even 7. This according to Admiral Brett Girard from the White House Coronavirus Task Force. The CDC is reviewing data. As you know, it's quarantined for 14 days. Half of people become symptomatic by day five. Uh, That's when the virus is present. And there's a long tail of very low probability afterwards. So the postulate it is, and the CDC is looking at it, will be driven by data. If you get a test at day seven or day 10, uh, particularly, can that lengthen, uh, shorten your quarantine from 14 days to perhaps 10 days? This is not an announcement that it's safe, but we're looking at that. And we have some breaking news. It looks like Donald Trump has, as expected, pardoned his disgraced former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, who Trump himself had fired after he said to have lied about his conversations with the Russians before Trump's inauguration, later pleading guilty to lying to the FBI and Congress before two different federal judges, before deciding to challenge his own guilty plea in a corrupt scheme headed by Trump's attorney general and fixer Bill Barr. I would expect more such corrupt pardons in the days ahead. Brad and Desi will be back to cover them. All right, we'll take a quick time out, come back on the other side, and talk with Ari Berman of Mother Jones Magazine for a bit of a postmortem on election 2020. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. If you don't like who's in there, vote them out. That's what election day is all about. The biggest gun we've got is called the ballot box. So if you don't like who's in there, vote them out. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host for another edition of the Bradcast. There are very few journalists that I think are in the same league as Brad Friedman when it comes to covering election issues. He's simply been doing it longer and better than virtually anyone else. 
But if I had to single out someone else I look to for news about voting rights, voter suppression, and other similar issues that have long plagued us, Ari Berman is the one I'd turn to. Ari Berman is a senior reporter at Mother Jones covering voting rights. He's also the author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Ari, I'm amazed it's been so long since we've spoken because we just went through a major election and I don't know how I didn't have you on the show during that, but I'm thrilled that you joined us today for a bit of a post-mortem on what happened. So the votes have pretty much been counted. We now know that when it's all said and done, the final vote tally will be about 158 million. That's 20 million more than the record-breaking in 2016 of 137 million. Turnout is estimated to be 66.5% of eligible voters. That's the highest since 1900 and pretty huge. But to put it in perspective, how does that compare with the rest of the world? It compares very low to the rest of the world, Nicole. And I don't think anyone's going to be emulating our elections anytime Mm -mm. soon uh, from the difficulty that people had voting before the election, um, during the election, all of the obstacles that voters faced attempts, for example, to make it much harder to vote by mail, to close polling places, to sabotage the post office. Then Election Day itself actually went fairly smoothly, all things considered. Uh, But then afterwards, it was just a complete mess uh, where it took a long time to count the votes, uh, largely because Republican state legislatures in places like Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania did not give election officials time before the election to count ballots, unlike Florida, for example, which, of course, was done counting uh, on election night, basically, um, because uh, their laws are different. Uh, and then the fact that Donald Trump basically for three weeks tried to launch a coup to uh, overturn the results. Uh, And it didn't succeed, but he's done a tremendous amount of damage. He's convinced virtually all of his supporters that there was widespread fraud when there wasn't. He's filed all of these frivolous lawsuits that luckily haven't succeeded, but you can imagine a different world where it was closer, uh, the evidence was stronger, uh, where he might have succeeded. Uh, They tried to convince state legislatures to overturn the will of the voters. That failed, but the fact that they even trotted out such a nightmare scenario is very worrisome. And so I had a lot of nightmare scenarios in my head going into the election uh, on election night and the days after. It didn't look like that was going to come to pass. But then all of these nightmare scenarios, one after another, trying to throw out the votes, trying to subvert the will of the people, they started emerging. Uh, And they weren't successful, but it was enough. (laughs) The nightmare scenarios were enough to give those of us that cover voting rights and elections, some nightmares. Oh, yeah. Uh, It seems like it's all over, but there's been a lot of damage in the process. Well, it seems like it's all over because, well, the General Services Administration finally signed the ascertainment so that the transition can begin. But Donald Trump is still, you know, tweeting, I've conceded nothing and apparently is doing some event today with Rudy Giuliani um, uh, regarding the Pennsylvania vote. It's it's embarrassing at this point for him. Um, but he's the one who did this. If I, I, It's impossible to pull Trump out of the scenario. But just for a second, Christopher Krebs, he's the guy who was the director of CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure, uh, Infrastructure Security Agency, before Trump fired him. And Trump fired him for stating, quote, the November 3rd election was the most secure in American history. There is no evidence that any voting system deleted or lost votes, changed votes, or was in any way compromised. Do you agree with him? Was his analysis correct? I do agree with him. And the amazing thing about all of this is despite the pandemic, despite the fact that there were hurdles placed in front of voters at every turn, We had record turnout that we haven't seen uh, in over 100 years, and we had a pretty smooth process. We had record turnout during early voting. Uh, We had a a very smooth election day because so many people voted early, and that really should have been the story of the election, was how many people turned out despite the barriers, uh, how we actually pulled off a free and fair election in the middle of a pandemic when one party was trying to do everything it could to make it harder to vote. Uh, But unfortunately, the Trump campaign decided to double down on these ridiculous uh, claims of voter fraud. And now millions and millions and millions of people believe it. And basically the entire Republican base 
believes that there was not a free and fair election, that was a stolen election. Um, that's going to make it harder to protect voting rights in the future. That's going to make it easier for Republicans to undermine voting rights in the future. Uh, and basically, these claims of a stolen election are kind of like this lost cause. Like when the Confederacy lost the, the Civil War, they claimed that they were you know, fighting for a just cause all along. Uh, and I, I fear that that's what's happening in Republican circles right now. And the fact that so few members of Congress uh, stepped up to denounce it and so few Republicans in the state stepped up to announce it uh, is very, very concerning. And so if this remains Trump's Republican Party, which by all indications it will, we're going to hear this rhetoric a lot moving forward. And that can't be good for democracy. No. And that's what's so frightening. So for the first time in a a long time, I mean, we've been talking, you've been covering this for at least a decade. We've been talking about it that long. Um, Our elections were not quite so secure. There was a lot of problems. And this year, again, as you said, in the midst of a global pandemic, we have this great secure election. In fact, for years now, many of us have been screaming for paper ballots hand counted. We got some of that out of necessity. Um, And just, you know, despite if if not for the Republicans and Donald Trump's disinformation campaign saying that, you know, mailed in ballots are, you know, fraud, wide open for fraud. um, This went very well. Could this be a move toward vote by mail being used more widely as we go forward? Well, I I think it it probably should be, but I think Republicans are going to draw the opposite Mm. conclusions. Um, If you were looking at the election from a scientific point of view, from an election administration point of view, you would say that, number one, a lot of people voted by mail and seemed to like it. Mm -hmm. And it's the kind of thing they might want to do, even if there's not a pandemic, because it's very confusing. Uh, Sorry, because it's very convenient. Um, Then a lot of people voted early in person. And you would say, well, we should definitely make that permanent, too. And Mm -hmm. so you would think, based on uh, what we saw in the election, that mail voting would become more popular and that in-person early voting would become more popular and that every state would have these kind of things. And not only that, um, but they would be permanent because in, in many states, they were they were just done temporarily. So in states, for example, where you needed an excuse to get a mail ballot, they waived those requirements. Mm-hmm. Or in states that didn't have early voting, they instituted, but only because of the pandemic. So we, we should have been saying, let's make these things permanent to increase voter turnout going forward. Instead, what you're going to hear from Republicans are, we need to get rid of mail voting. We need to get rid of early voting. We need to get rid of all the methods that Democrats used, even though Republican turnout was up, too. I mean, the story of the election is that turnout increased for both Democrats and Republicans. It just increased for Democrats more in places where they won, like in Georgia. Um, But you'd think that given that turnout increased for both parties, there could be some sensible compromises to improve mail voting, to improve early voting, and also to improve how ballots are counted so that states like Michigan and Wisconsin, Pennsylvania can count ballots like Florida does, yeah. which is the ballots start getting counted when they come in. And then, you know, the winner on election night or the day after. Um, and, you know, Florida in 2020 went much smoother than Florida in 2000. Um, so, you know, despite all its problems, um, Florida ha- has managed to upgrade its election system. And so, I mean, we're not doing any of that. We're having the completely wrong conversation. We're having all these conversations about voter fraud that doesn't exist, as opposed to how to make our system better after learning the lessons of the pandemic. Yeah, well, part of that, I believe, Ari Berman, is the problem with the media. And we now have like two separate uh, uh, avenues to go down. There's the one that, you know, regular people listen to reading newspapers and watching TV news coverage. Then there's the other, the right wing echo chamber, which used to just be Fox, but now appears to um, have said to Fox, you're telling the truth. So we're no longer going to pay attention to you. Instead, we'll go to these fringe outlets and turn them into big behemoths and and you know, Fox is losing in the ratings now to CNN and MSNBC. It's astounding the denial of reality that's going on. And I would hope that elected officials would step up and say this is nonsense. But they're not. And and that is disturbing. That seems to be the big crisis that we're facing going forward. Because if, as you said, if you go by what happened, what actually happened in this election, 
it would be encouraging and more people, you know, state governments would say, hey, this is the way to go in the future. But I'm wondering if this all signals the the turnout, the way it all went this year, Um, maybe a move away from the Republican um, way of thinking, which goes back to 1980 and Paul Weyrich, who said, you know, we we don't want the goo goo syndrome, the good government syndrome. The more people vote, the less good it is for us, based on paraphrasing, obviously, um, because it doesn't that doesn't seem to be the case right now. Eighty million people voted for Joe Biden, but 74 million voted for Donald Trump, both of them breaking any previous records. So, um you know, I always joke that uh, I, I give grief to people who say, well, this election is going to come down to turnout. It always comes down to turnout, doesn't it? Yeah. And we'll see what happens. I mean, it may be that in some states, Republicans are happy with high turnout uh, and they believe that their party can win when as many people as possible vote. I am concerned, however, that that's not going to be the lesson that's drawn <sighs> in Michigan or Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or Georgia that what you're going to see instead is Republicans convening in early 2021 and introducing all these methods to try to target the voting types that Democrats use. So try to target mail voting or try to target early voting. We're already hearing, for example, in Georgia, they want to have a legislative session where they add a voter ID requirement to mail ballots. So, I mean, there were no problems with mail ballots when Republicans used them. But, of course, as soon as Democrats used them, it became a huge scandal. And so uh, I'm worried that all of the conspiracy theories that we're hearing from the president are going to become weaponized. And we're going to see the weaponization of it most clearly in these state legislatures when they convene in 2021, that the coup has failed. The effort to overturn the election through legal or extra legal means has failed, but that the push to make it harder to vote uh, is not going anywhere. And I'm afraid that in, in some places it's probably going to accelerate. It's stunning. And when you think back on it, it's it less than what was a decade ago, the Senate had voted to reconfirm the Voting Rights Act by like a 90 something to, you know, not, with with over 90 votes in the Senate out of 100. That's no longer the case. No, it isn't. Yeah, you're right. In, in 2006, 2006, the Voting Rights Act was reauthorized uh, and the vote was 98 to, to zero in the wow. Senate and 390 to 33 uh, in the House. Uh, and uh, since then, there has the consensus for voting rights has really uh, evaporated. Uh, and so we're in a perilous position. And one of the things that I was hoping was that there would be a majority in the U.S. Senate <laughs> for things like restoring the Voting Rights Act. And that could still happen depending on what happens in Georgia. Right. Um, but as long as Mitch McConnell is in control of the Senate, they're not going to pass any legislation to restore the Voting Rights Act. And as long as Republicans are in control of these state legislatures, it's very hard to see them passing any affirmative bills that are going to make it much easier to vote. We're speaking with Ari Berman, of course, uh, the author of the book, Give Us the Ballot, which if you care and you should about voting rights and our vote in this country, you should read. He uh, he also covers um, uh, voting and and other issues for Mother Jones magazine. Um, a, A couple of minutes ago, Ari, you said something about state legislatures. And I noticed you tweeted something very important. You wrote, one thing that hasn't gotten enough attention, the election of Democratic governors, attorneys general and secretary of states in 2018 in Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin had a huge impact in 2020 by helping people vote, fighting frivolous lawsuits and making sure votes counted and were certified. This is why state and local races are so important. I can't agree with you more. Um, but Democrats didn't, just like we lost seats in the House, didn't pick up the Senate. Democrats didn't do well in state and local elections either. Um, this was the year that was so important because this is the year that determines uh, who gets to redraw the district maps going forward for the next 10 years, right? Yeah, and I think that was probably the worst consequence for Democrats of the 2020 election. I know Mm -hmm. a lot of people focused on the losses in the House, the losses in the Senate. But I think the failure to pick up these state legislative chambers was probably the the biggest failure of the Democratic Party in 2020, because now Republicans are going to be in control of the redistricting process, (sighs) whether it's in Florida or Georgia or Texas 
for all of these states that are still under one-party control. Now, there are going to be some states that are different than 2010. Uh, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania have Democratic governors, for example. Uh, Michigan is going to have an independent redistricting commission. So Republicans aren't going to be able to gerrymander everywhere like they did in 2010, but they're going to be in control of drawing districts. Uh, in many more states than Democrats will. Uh, and that's going to have a big impact, not just on these states, but also uh, on the uh, national level as well, because, of course, the, the districts that the state legislatures draw will impact who controls the House of Representatives in 2022 and beyond. And so this is an, an issue that's really getting much attention right now. But I do think the ability of Republicans to gerrymander uh, is very, very frightening. Now, the good news is that some of the people that Democrats elected on the local level in 2018, the governors, the secretaries of state, the AGs will act as uh, as a, a countervailing influence here. But I'm absolutely convinced that the elections of these Democratic officials in, in 2018 made a huge difference in 2020. Um, I think it's even possible you could argue that Trump might have won Pennsylvania, might oh, have yeah. won Michigan, might have won Wisconsin, had these states been, con been controlled by Republican governors and Republican state legislatures. Because if you just look at the difference, for example, in the voting laws in those states versus in Florida, for example, or in Texas, which is under one-party control. I mean, there was no one to push back against what the Republican governors were doing uh, or the Republican legislatures were doing. Um, and the fact that you had the ability in Pennsylvania or Michigan um, to fight back against these frivolous lawsuits, to have secretaries of state that would, that would implement measures to make it easier to vote, uh, I think had a huge impact and, and hasn't really got enough attention. Without a doubt. And, and sadly, I think the Democrats did a lousy job in, in pushing the down-ballot races, especially the state and local races, because this, uh, again, this election outcome determines who, who gets the census results, such as this year's census is going to turn out, and run with it with districting. And we have to live with that for the next decade. Um, and I don't think they made those consequences clear enough. In fact, I think on a number of levels, the Democrats dropped the ball. We got rid of Trump. That's great. But uh, the rest of it, not so much. Um, but now we need to look forward. So Ari Berman, we've been living with your book, Give Us the Ballot, since 2016. Um, and uh, thankfully, things got seemed to get better this year. But you got a new book on the way called Minority Rule. I think I know where you're going with that. You want to tell us a little bit about it? Sure. Well, I'm far from finishing it because yeah. of the election. But mm. basically, I'm, I'm looking at all of the un undemocratic structures uh, of the political system and, and how they're manifesting themselves today. And I mean, you have to look no further than uh, a lot of the things we're seeing right now. The fact that um, Joe Biden is winning the popular vote by 6 million votes and rising, um, but he only won Georgia by uh, 12,000 votes. He only won uh, Arizona by uh, 10,000 votes. And so we were, we were, we were gnawing our teeth for days mm -hmm. over very small margins in these swing states when Biden had this huge uh, lead nationally. Uh, in the Senate, um, Democrats are, are going to win millions of more votes than Republicans. Wow. But right now, Republicans are in control of the body. In state legislatures, um, Republican candidates got fewer votes than Democrats, but will have the ability to draw districts uh, for the next decade. Uh, we have a Supreme Court where Donald Trump, despite now losing the popular vote twice, has appointed three justices who are going to shape the court for a decade. So we still have all of these undemocratic structures. And uh, these undemocratic structures are going to limit what Joe Biden can do. It's going to limit what the Democrats can do, both at the state and the federal level. So, I mean, we obviously dodged a huge bullet in getting rid of Donald Trump. Right. I mean, you could really argue that uh, the election of Joe Biden probably saved American democracy. Yeah. But American democracy is still very weak on a lot of other fronts. And I don't want people to become complacent here and think that everything is, is good just because Joe Biden is in there. Joe Biden is going to be constrained in a lot of ways. And Republicans still have all these other key levers of power, many of which they hold because of how undemocratic our institutions actually are. Uh, without a doubt. We are still in perilous territory here. It's like once or maybe two steps up and one step back instead of one up and two back. But we still have a long way to go. And I look forward to reading your book. We do suffer through minority rule and it's more apparent 
each year that passes and, and just watching how Donald Trump is still attempting to steal this election and seeing how tenuous it was. It could have happened, even though, as you say, Joe Biden is leading the popular vote by six million. Uh, it's astounding. I call it opposite world. Nothing makes sense. Ari Berman, I know how busy you are. It's the Thanksgiving Eve. And I thank you so much for jumping on the line with us. Uh, I, I appreciate your work more than I let on. <laughs> so let me say it now. Thank you. Uh, especially on this Thanksgiving. Thank you so much for the work you do. Thanks so much, Nicole. Great to talk to you again. Ari Berman is on Twitter, at Ari Berman, and he's writing these days for Mother Jones, available online at motherjones.com. So in 55 days or less, we'll be rid of Donald Trump. But so much of his idiocy lives on. Trump has a habit of not only lying and gaslighting, he also butchers the language regularly. There's one word in particular that he seems to misuse more than almost any other. We'll talk treason next. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Five major corporations now own over 80% of all media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Your support helps us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations across the country. You can make a real difference by supporting independent media. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. Join us at bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. You've got the broadcast. Brad and Desi have started their Thanksgiving celebration a little early, so you got Nicole Sandler filling in again. Donald Trump might tell us that he has the best words. I know words. I have the best words. <laughs> but we know his words, and they're far from the best. Now, because I criticize, I want to be even more careful about the words I choose to use. There's one in particular that Trump overuses and always wrong, but I might be guilty of abusing the same word. I went looking for examples of Trump's ridiculous charges of treason and found out that the Washington Post beat me to it. They assembled some of his greatest hits. You have the other side, even on positive news, really positive news like that. They were like death. Somebody said treasonous. I mean, yeah, I guess why not? It's a shame that the fake news covers it the way they do. It's honestly, it's really, it's almost treasonous. You want to know the truth. Number one, the Times should never have done that because really what they've done is virtually, you know, it's treason. You can call it a lot of things. What we were playing out until just recently was the insurance policy. They wanted to do a subversion. It was treason. It was really treason. Who specifically are you accusing of treason? Well, I think a number of people. If you look at Comey, if you look at McCabe, if you look at probably people people higher than that, if you look at Strzok, if you look at his lover, Lisa Page, the Adam Schiff version where he made up my conversation. He actually made it up. It should be criminal. It should be treasonous. He should resign from office in disgrace. And frankly, they should look at him for treason because he is making up the words of the president of the United States. Not only words, but the meaning. And it's a disgrace. It should not be allowed to happen. The whistleblower is a disgrace to our country, a disgrace. And the whistleblower, because of that, should be revealed. And his lawyer, who said the worst thing possible two years ago, he should be sued. And maybe for treason. The Obama administration, Justice Department, was a disgrace. And they got caught. They got caught. Very dishonest people. But much more than dishonest. It's treason. It's treason. We caught them in a very corrupt, you could call it treasonous, because it is, it's treasonous. We caught them in a very corrupt act. They're dirty cops. And we caught him. On Obama and the spying situation, this, this idea that they were spying on your campaign, you've been asked before about what crime he would have potentially committed. But I remember you talking to treason. Well, treason. That's, that's what I was it's treason. 
obviously Trump doesn't understand the meaning of the word treason. I think I do, but I want to ask an expert. Here's my train of thought. Donald Trump has no way to win this thing. What he is doing is a concerted effort to keep Joe Biden from lawfully transitioning into office, to make him less a credible president-elect in the eyes of at least half the country. This is what I'm talking about. This is why I've got a real problem. And it's not only the gum in the works that he's throwing, you know, making the transition more difficult. The other problem, the other complication here is we're in the midst of this global pandemic and people are dying. And Trump's refusal to allow the Biden transition team to get briefed on what's happening with the coronavirus and the vaccines and his denial of a smooth transfer of power, I believe, is a clear and present danger to this nation, which is why I ask the question, is this treasonous behavior? And I think it is. But then again, I'm just a radio host. What do I know? So I want to call on an expert to find out. And I'm thrilled to welcome Professor Carlton F.W. Larson to the show. Professor, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you are exactly what the doctor ordered. You have a brand new book out called On Treason, A Citizen's Guide to the Law. You heard a little bit of what I said there. Again, I'm throwing out a lot of words here. I'm not a lawyer. But to me, because lives are in danger, it sounds to me like this is treasonous behavior. Am I totally off base? Um, it's, it, well, it comes down to whether treasonous and treason are the same thing. Ah. Um, and, 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 and this is where, um, you know, there's, there's often a lot of, um, confusion between the sort of very narrow, um, legal definition of treason as a, as an actual capital crime, uh, and then a whole array of other sorts of disloyal behavior, um, that we often colloquially refer to. Um, you know, as treachery or as a betrayal of the country, um, and it might be sort of treasonous or treasony, uh, but it might actually, um, in most cases, usually is not um, actually treasonous defined um, in our Constitution. Yeah, well, I read I read the section in the Constitution, and and to this layperson, it may as well be Greek. I mean, there there's a reason that I'm not a lawyer because I I can't get through that stuff. Back in college, million years ago, my semester on broadcast law was the hardest thing I ever did in my life. Um, so it's like getting through the legalese, and the Constitution is certainly written in a different vernacular than we enjoy now. So, um, what does the treason? section of the Constitution say? It really, it has to do with wartime, doesn't it? Yeah, so the actual definition in Article 3 is that treason against the United States will consist only uh, of levying war against the United States uh, or adhering to their enemies, uh, giving them aid and comfort. Uh, and so the first part of that, levying war against the United States, um, that's typically what we would think of as sort of internal rebellions, uh, you know, to try to overthrow the government. And all the cases have said that that requires some use uh, of armed force. Uh, to do that. So it sort of has a, you know, kind of a military look to it. Uh, and then adhering to enemies, uh, enemies has a fairly narrow definition as well, and that is a uh, foreign nation or group uh, with whom we are in a state of open war. Uh, and so that excludes a lot of nations whom we are you know, sort of just generally hostile, but we're not actually at war with. Uh, and so I think currently the enemies of the United States under that definition are, would be the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and ISIS. But now what if a president were to use American troops against uh, American citizens? Like sort of what we saw almost happen. Well, it did happen. They used tear gas on American citizens in Lafayette Square. Um, how do you classify that? Well, I would classify that as a, you know extraordinary abuse of power. Mm. Um, but that doesn't seem like um, an actual crime of treason. Indeed, most things that a president can do you know, that, are, that are really bad um, you know, that really, you know, sell out the country, um, typically don't rise to the level of actual criminal treason. Now, fortunately, there are, you know, an array of other statutes that might govern that. Um, so, for example, if you're, you're passing secrets to a, a country that's not an enemy, well, that's still um, espionage, mm -hmm. right? You know, or if you're, um, you know, doing other things to subvert uh, an election, for example, that may well violate a whole host of, of statutes dealing with uh, elections. Um, so just because something isn't treason doesn't mean that it's okay. Um, and I think a lot of people get hung up on that. They really want certain offenses to be treason and 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 must be treason. Um, but even if it's not treason, 
there's a very good chance that the actual act might still be criminal uh, under some other offense. I see. Again, we're speaking with Professor Carlton F.W. Larson. The new book is On Treason, A Citizen's Guide to the Law. A few minutes before you came on, I played a video. I was looking for it, but I I apparently closed it already. That was a a compilation that The Washington Post put together of about two minutes worth of Donald Trump making at least 20 allegations of treason. The whistleblower, treason. Um, People who didn't vote for him, treason. I mean, anything he doesn't like, he calls treason. And obviously, he doesn't know the meaning of the term either. Do we use it way too freely these days? Should we be more educated about what treason actually is? Well, I think one, one should always be careful about it, because it, what, if you actually mean it in a serious way, what you mean is someone has committed a, a capital crime. Yeah. Right? You know, the highest crime known to law, that you think they should be tried, convicted, and possibly executed. Uh, and so if you're really serious about that, um, you know, you've got to have something to back that up. Uh, and when you look at what Trump is saying... It's, it's complete nonsense. <laughs> yes. I mean, I think he has, he has abused the term treason more than probably any person in our history, and it's, it's particularly appalling coming from him, who's supposed to be in, you know, sort of the, the chief executive of the nation, who's supposed to, his words are supposed to have enormous impact. And you think about, you know, imagine if Barack Obama had accused a particular American citizen of treason when he was president of the United States. Yeah, I mean, that would have dangerous. been front-page news everywhere. I mean, it would have been absolutely earth-shaking. Uh, and now the president just spews this out, you know, with, with abandon, and we've become so inured to it that we don't even realize sometimes just how extraordinary this is for president of the United States to say something like that. Uh, and he clearly has no no regard for, for what uh, the actual law is. I think in his view, anybody who is <clears throat> excuse me, disrespectful of the president uh, is a traitor. I mean, he really thinks that treason is about personal loyalty to him mm-hmm. uh, and not about loyalty to the nation, because he seems to be completely incapable of distinguishing you know, between his own personal self-interest uh, and the interests of the country. <laughs> exactly. No, that's a, that's, a, that's a perfect way to put it. And the reason that I use the T word is because having to do with what's happening with the, the COVID, with the pandemic, in that People are dying. We've lost a quarter of a million Americans to this disease. And I believe his um, mishandling of the pandemic is culpable. I think I, I believe a lot of it is his it's not his fault that that it this virus appeared out of wherever. Um, but but I believe the spread of it and the way it has just engulfed this nation and the fact that we lead the world in not only cases, but deaths and hospitalizations. I, I put that on him and I say people are dying and he calls it warfare. <laughs> so that, that's the that's the connection I made to treason. Others have suge- suggested that maybe it's not treason, but sedition. Now, you don't deal with sedition in the book, but is sedition applicable here? So sedition is, is one of those crimes that has sort of a various meanings, uh, and it's had different meanings over our history. We had a Federal Sedition Act in 1798 that um, was mostly restrictive of free speech, as was the 1918 Sedition Act. Those are you know, clearly unconstitutional under modern law. So there's no uh, sort of direct federal sedition statute that would govern this. Um, there is um, the crime of seditious conspiracy, uh, which deals with you know, plots and conspiracies to uh, levy war against the United States or to use force uh, against the federal government. Um, so those have, those have been used, you know, for example, in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. Uh, that was uh, one of the charges that was used. Uh, but that statute really does require uh, the use of force. Um, and in, in Trump's case, what you're dealing with is simple incompetence, right? mm-hmm. absolute failure uh, to do the things uh, he was supposed to do. So I don't think those statutes are uh, a very good fit. Indeed, there aren't many criminal statutes that are a good fit uh, for simple presidential incompetence, because uh, it's very hard to write a, a statute that you know defines incompetence, gives people notice uh, you know, as, as to what counts as incompetence, uh, and and then being able to to prove it satisfactorily. So, I mean, typically when we have incompetent leaders, I mean, we just have to rely on the other branches of government to try to keep them in check and and hopefully rely uh, on elections. 
you know, I didn't give you like a full and proper introduction. So let me just say that you are professor of law at the University of California, Davis School of Law. You teach American constitutional law and English and American legal history. Looking back on this administration, which is hopefully in its last 59 days, if my math is correct. um, How do you think history is going to remember this president? I think he'll be remembered uh, as probably the worst president in American history, the person who is the most utterly unqualified for the job uh, and the person who most consistently um, debased himself pretty much every single day uh, he was in office and made pretty much everything he touched worse, um, which is consistent with his career prior uh, to the presidency. Uh, It's very hard um, to imagine historians um, giving much of a positive gloss uh, to anything uh, the man has done. And, and I fully agree with you. I mean, you and I are sensible human beings. You're an expert on the law. I'm a you know former disc jockey and uh, talk show host. Um, but I try to stay up current on everything that's going on. How do you explain 74 million people voting for him? Now, granted, thankfully, it's looking like 80 million voted for Joe Biden. So we're going to get the tyrant out of office, if I'm using that word correctly. It seems to work for me. But this is like nothing we've ever seen before. It's great that people are voting, but these numbers are insane, aren't they? It, this sounds like it seems like a cult. And I'm wondering if, if you think if history tells us anything, can we get back to some semblance of normalcy after this? Well, I think we will get back to normalcy. I mean, I do think Trump's, you know, unique set of personal deficiencies um, are so extraordinary uh, that, you know, unless Trump would be reelected again in 2024, it's unlikely that he would have a president um, who brings that full constellation of flaws to the office. Uh, but, you know, the, the vote totals that we got show that this is a closely divided country. Yeah. Um, and I suspect that many of those votes for Trump were not necessarily for Trump. They were against Joe Biden mm-hmm. uh, or they, they were against Democrats. And, you know, I, I think, you know, a lot, a lot of Democrats have said they would never will never vote for Republican no matter what. Uh, and I think, you know, a lot of Republicans say the same thing. They'll never vote for Democrat no matter what. Uh, and then Trump comes along and does all that he does. And that's the no matter what. And so you're still going to get a significant number of votes uh, for that candidate. And as long as the country is, is, is as polarized as it is, and as long as uh, we have these very sharp divides between the political parties, I think we're going to continue to see, you know, very close uh, presidential elections like this. Have we ever had a, a president who has um, just cultivated this cult of personality? So, I mean, uh, mo- most people who look at him and his following do call it a cult, and it seems that way. There's no reasoning with most of his followers. They believe, uh, I-, I use a term called opposite world, that everything, you know, he projects everything, and if if you basically look at the opposite of what he's saying, you might get to some semblance of the truth. There, there, there is this cult of this cultish attitude around him. Um, has this ever happened before in American history? Have we had this kind of a leader before? Well, I mean, we, we've certainly have had, you know, presidents who have you know, tried to establish connections with the American people and people who had, you know, a very high opinion of the, of the president. If you think back to the New Deal and a large number of people who had, say, Franklin Roosevelt's picture hanging in their house as they listened to his fireside chats and right. things like that. Um, so you certainly have had presidents who have had sort of you know, significant popular followings. I think what's sort of distinctive now um, is that we have a, a very fractured media environment. Yeah. Uh, and so back in the 1930s, if you wanted to know what Roosevelt administration was doing, you could listen to the radio, right? you know, sort of a handful of national uh, channels, and you could read the newspapers. Uh, and that was really it. And most people read the same things. And so everybody was kind of on the same page in terms of what the basic facts were. You know, they could argue about how to respond to those, but everybody kind of lived in the same rough conceptual universe. And I think now, and it's really in, probably just in, even in the last 10 years, that mm-hmm. we've allowed people to be, come into these um, deep silos uh, in which nothing of the other side penetrates. Um, and part of that is, of course, things like Twitter and Facebook. You can, you know, you can choose what to follow, um, the rise of Fox News, uh, but also even things like the smartphone. It just allows you to have this steady stream 
of partisan content coming at you wherever you are, no matter what you're doing. And that, I think, has dramatically increased this type of polarization. Uh, and so that's, uh, Trump has been able to feed off that uh, quite well. So right. it's hard to come up with you know, comparisons going back into history because they just didn't have the same media environment. Yeah. And it seems to be getting worse, more divided. I mean, uh, there, you know, a lot of the Trumpers are leaving Facebook and Twitter and going to this new platform called Parler, which is apparently just right wing craziness. Um, I did see a comment on a listserv that I'm on from someone who said one of her FBI friends says they love it because you've got all the wing nuts Con, you know, in one place gathering where they can keep an easy eye on them. But it seems like they're dividing our media. There's media they'll watch and they're they're going away from Fox now over to Newsmax and to OAN. They, they don't trust uh, mainstream media. They don't trust um, they, don't, they don't trust the news. They don't trust the truth. So, I mean, it seems like pretty soon we're going to be so completely divided that we're watching different uh, TV news, we're, we're reading different newspapers, we're talking amongst ourselves, and there's like a, a no man's land in the middle. Um, it just, and, and again, this is all new. I mean, we've never, well, I guess we have experienced that before and we've survived, huh? Well, I mean, hopefully we, we will survive this. It's, you know, we, we've, we've had a lot of difficult things in the, in the country, and I, and I think we'll eventually get through this. But it is a challenge to figure mm-hmm. out how precisely one should deal with this particular problem. Because, I mean, if you, we tend to think that, you know, we, we can solve problems by talking them through and, uh, you know, that the, that the best ideas will, will emerge uh, over, over poor ones. Um, but when, the, that, when that conversation isn't happening at all, uh, it, it, it's, it's hard for that to happen. Yeah. Um, uh, Professor Larson, I can't thank you enough. Obviously, I'm coming at this from a layperson's perspective, just trying to, you know, figure out how we navigate these waters. I constantly refer to a song called History Repeating. It's all just a little bit of history repeating, and it does tend to do that. But it seems like we've veered off into right field, strange territory through the cornfield. And I'm just looking for some uh, some voice of reason saying, no, we'll be OK. We'll get through this. And as a history professor, I'm hoping you, you can do that. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I, I do think if you look at the the, the vote, um, you know, I do think young people mm-hmm. uh, on balance, I seem seem less susceptible to this uh, than, than some of their their elders did. Um, so uh, I think, you know, hopefully long term, you know, things like this will eventually die away. Uh, you are. But let me how, let me ask how, how long that long term is, 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 of course, the big question. You deal with young people on a daily basis. I'm uh, guessing right now you're doing remote learning at UC Davis. Yes, our school is almost entirely uh, remote. Um, and how are, I mean, I, I'm getting a lot of encouragement from young people. I'm a little older. I happen to live in South Florida in the next town over from Parkland where the shooting was at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Um, and what we saw was the rise of a group of young people who just have blown my mind with how smart they are and how knowledgeable and how involved and dedicated and persistent. And I'm seeing that from a lot of younger people who are getting involved now. Do you find that among your students? Are you encouraged by what you're seeing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the you know the great things of of, of being a teacher, you know, you get you get older every year, but the students stay the <laughs> same don't. age, yeah. and and you get this, you know, sort of see where where the where the youngins are, and um, they are incredibly inspiring. I mean, we, the future will, I think, will be in very good hands. These are smart, dedicated people who really, you know, care about the country and want to make it better. And um, so, I, I'm very confident based on at least the students I see. Good. I'm glad to hear. That's how I feel, too. I'm ready for them to take over. Like, I'm really ready for them to take over. Um, maybe in two years, we'll see a changing of the guard uh, in Congress leadership and stuff like that. Anyway, the book is fascinating, and it's something we could all, you know, bone up on a little bit because the word is thrown around a lot. It's On Treason, A Citizen's Guide to the Law. Carlton F.W. Larson, thank you so much for joining us today. I've learned a lot from you. I really appreciate it. 
And with that, it's a wrap. A turkey wrap, perhaps. I'm Nicole Sandler, filling in for Brad and Desi today. As we enjoy our responsibly socially distanced Thanksgiving, I'll sign off by expressing my gratitude for the warm welcome I get when I fill in here, and to the listeners who support independent, progressive media like the Bradcast and The Nicole Sandler Show. We have a long road to recovery ahead, but at least without Trump, we stand a fighting chance of making it to the other side of the pandemic alive. And this Thanksgiving, we do have a lot to be grateful for. So let's do that. Let's make things even better. I'm Nicole Sandler for Brad Friedman and Desi Doyen, wishing you a very happy Thanksgiving. Now go cook some lame duck, a turkey.